number one. And before I get into the message, I just need to tell you that um, I had kind of outlined for the year where I wanted to go with messages and, and had done that sometime back in October. And I felt arrested in my spirit during our week of prayer. Um, the number and the depth of the needs that were presented when we wrote our needs out in prayer shook me to my core. Uh, and, and some of the things that you expressed, and I began to realize, I, I don't know if you know this today, but today I start my fifth year here. Super Bowl Sunday is my anniversary. So, um, so having completed four years, I, it began to dawn on me, maybe it took four years for us to get comfortable enough with one another that we would be able to be transparent that we could kind of take off the masks and just be real because I want you to know none of us have it all together. None of us have it all together. And if you're trying to portray to people you have it all together, then there's deceit in your life because we're all on a journey of working out our salvation. And so, as a result of some of the things that I saw here, I began to seek the Lord and, and felt a direction to um, talk about rebuilding our lives because I recognize that there's so much that has so much depth going on in so many of our families that I felt directed the Lord to, to, to the book of Nehemiah. And so I'm starting a series today on Nehemiah, and I'm not sure how long it will last, but I just have felt such rich truth in my study time as it relates to where we are that I wanted to be able to share that with you. And, and I've got some great resources that I've had available, some by Dr. George Wood and a book by... Chuck Swindoll and, and some other stuff by Matt Chandler and I've kind of conglomerated some of these resources together uh, to something that I think will fit us personally within our church. But before I get to the word, you can you can turn to Nehemiah chapter one and keep your finger there because we will get to the, get to it ultimately this morning. But let me set a stage for you. You and I have a couple of things against us in the world today and and how we see our lives. That, that create for us a picture of what we think human flourishing looks like. When people ask you, how are you doing today? We base our answers based on how we feel that we are flourishing. We're either doing great or we're not doing great. And so we've got this image of human flourishing that, that kind of goes in our mind. The problem with that for us is that we really face a twofold problem. Number one, the first is a spiritual issue. Because of our sinful nature, we each believe, whether we would state this out loud or not, we do have a belief system that's seated in there somewhere that we should be the center of the universe. There's a basic selfishness that, ab that abides in us by our very nature. We really believe that everything should kind of center around us and, and center around what we want and what we desire and that... God, if He's really a good God, would make sure that my desires are met so that I can praise Him for His goodness of what He does in my life. And so we have this image that if God is doing His job right, then everything should work out the way that I want it to. And we don't want to state that out loud because when we do, we recognize, man, that sounds so selfish, but it's there. And it manifests itself in the aspects that if God does something different than what we thought He should do, we instantly get offended by Him and disappointed in Him. To the point where there are some people 
that whatever the circumstances of their life may be, come to the Lord and say, Lord, I'm going to give you this, this window of time to fix the circumstances of my life. And if you don't do this the way I expect or the way that I want, then I'm out. I will have said, I've given God your shot and you didn't do it. And so because I'm the center of my universe and you didn't do things the way I wanted, then I'm just out. I'm backing out of this and I'll continue to try to find other ways. And we become discouraged and disillusioned when the idea that we sing of God's love, well, how can God love me if He doesn't do what I want or how I need it to be? So that's one of the problems we face. The second problem that we face is related to the fact that we are born into a part of the world in America that really exalts and even celebrates radical individualism. That we can do it on our own. I drove around the other night in a neighborhood that I was supposed to know and I couldn't find where I was going and I refused to punch the address into Google. And my wife's sitting there after all of these years quietly recognizing food's going to get cold when we get there. I'm going to, I'll get there. Because there's this radical individualism that is within us. And so we have a spiritual nature that really believes that a good God should serve our needs and desires. Which, in effect, if you think about it, really makes us the God of our life. Because we supersede Him in that. And then it's fed by a culture that believes that the individual is really the apex of all things. And so, when we begin to look biblically at what it means to see human flourishing in light of the Word of God, you're going to see that what we live in and what the Word proclaims are exactly opposite. We live in a conflicted society as it relates to what it should be versus what the Lord is calling us to. And so the will of God as it relates to the Word of God and to us is that our desires and our will should be subservient to the Word and the will of God. And that in relationship with Him, we come before Him not saying, if you do, don't do things the way I want, then I'm out. But rather, how do you want me to live under your Lordship, recognizing that what you will do in me will be greater than what I can do in me? And that's the dilemma, because we think we can do it better. Because at the end, we think, I'm shooting for happiness here. And so... We recognize we live in a world and in a society where people want to be happy. I cannot tell you how many times I've had people say, I'm doing something different because I'm just not happy. I'm, I'm, not hap- I'm not happy in my marriage. I'm not happy in the job. I'm not happy. And because happiness becomes the goal, we recognize that if we've not attained that, then I'm, I'm jumping out to do something different. As the child of God, God sets before us not happiness as the goal, but joy. And these are two different qualities. Because you'll recognize that joy is unshakable. It's a can't-be-taken-from-you type thing, whereas happiness is a fleeting emotion that when you think you've got something that makes you happy, you recognize that happiness is fleeting and will always, always disappoint you in the long run. And if you don't believe me, think back through your life about the things that you thought would make you happy that you got only to discover that happiness was fleeting and didn't last for you. And so we find the Scriptures that 
A picture of human flourishing is that place where you and I have our preferences subservient to the Word of God and subservient to the will of God, and that our pursuit is ultimately about finding joy and not happiness. Because when you discover that you've grabbed something that you think would make you happy and it doesn't, you'll recognize that your pursuit of happiness will always be an empty trail. And so if history on earth has taught us anything, it's happiness betrays us, if not always, most of the time. But joy is unshakable. I was at a funeral of a friend that I told you about last week, and in the middle of this funeral, this young 60-year-old man who had his life taken from him by hitting black ice and being taken instantly from this world as he was going to a place where he was going to shut himself in to, to write some sermons. I stood there and I looked at his three sons who were young adults and his wife, and, and my wife and I commented on the fact that what strength they had is that they stood together and they spoke. And Cindy and I were saying, I don't know if I could do that in that condition. But they spoke. And what they spoke of was the fact that this is not a happy occasion but it's a joyful occasion. Because joy is something that is foundational to our life in Christ. Joy is something that holds you in the hard times. Joy is something that is real and tangible because it's of the nature of God and it's planted within you. And so the Lord begins to address us as the aspect of human flourishing for the child of God needs to be filled with joy because the joy of the Lord is our strength. Happiness is not. And so as we begin to look into this book of Nehemiah, you have to understand that what God is leading here is to a life of joy, not necessarily the pursuit of happiness. Now turn, if you would, to Nehemiah. Chapter 1. And before I read it, let me just give you a, a, a brief historical view because you'll need this as we go through this. I'm not going to start at Genesis, but I'm going to get close, so I'm going to do this really quick. Let me start in Exodus. Israel wants a king. And so they've been, they've been led out of Egypt toward the land of milk and honey and everything that God has promised them. And on the journey, they refuse to trust God. And a journey which should have taken them 39 days takes them 40 years because somebody refused to turn on the GPS system. And so because of this 40 years of, of wilderness wandering and grumbling and the people of God that were out there, he let a generation die off so that a generation of faith that was behind them could then inherit the promise. And we know that Joshua then leads them into the promised land. And after arriving in the promised land, they look around and they see that all the other nations have kings. And so we want a king. Does that sound like our kids? Nope, sounds like me. So God gives them what they want and gives them a king. And when they went to choose their first king, Saul stood out because he's like a foot taller than everybody else in the whole land, kind of like me and Pastor Mark. You know. And so he stands out. He's, he's tall. He's got a booming voice. You know, he seems to be the guy that every guy wants to be and every woman wants to be with. He just head and shoulders above everybody. And so he obviously became the king because he just stood out. And ultimately, Saul, like many of the others before him, got himself into a spot where he refused to trust God. And so he lost his kingdom to a young man by the name of David who was a heart-playing shepherd boy. Kind of the opposite end of the spectrum from where they went the first time. In fact, as you read the story of how David became king, you'll find it's really interesting because David's father, when he knew one of his sons was going to be king, brought them all together and the prophet's looking at them and he's going, it's not any of them. You don't have any other boys? 
And he goes, oh, 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 David. Yes, sir. One of your brothers run out and get the kid. So David comes in and we all recognize that he's the one. The prophet looked at him and said, that's the one. And anointed him king. And so David becomes king of Israel. And when David becomes king of Israel, the Bible tells us that God's favor rested upon him. And we could do a series of messages about this because there's something... There's something very heartwarming about the fact that mistakes don't take you out all the time. Because David was not a perfect man by any stretch of the imagination, but the Bible says he was a man after God's own heart. And so David, through his reign, builds Israel into a legitimate regional force and a regional power. And through his leadership, begins to set all of the historic enemies of Israel to flight. They, they just won a lot of battles. And... and In fact, I I marvel at reading about some of the battles because David whips the Philistines so many times that you would think like after about the 32nd time, the Philistines would say, let's see, we're seeing a pattern here. We go to war against David, he kills us. At what point do you think the 33rd time is going to be any different? It's just interesting to me how dumb, sinful people can be. David dies. And Solomon, his son, begins to take over the kingdom and begins to reign. And during that time, Israel continues to flourish under the reign of Solomon. And Solomon is the one that builds the temple. And Solomon is a really interesting character that I don't have a whole lot of time to get into. But one of the interesting things about it is that Solomon is getting toward the end of his life, which has been filled with wisdom. And toward the end of his life, he kind of wanders off into some very selfish things. And as he's getting near the end of his life... We begin to see that he gets nervous, and you can kind of read this in Ecclesiastes as as he's getting to the end. And really, if if I were to write a version of what he is saying at the end of Ecclesiastes, it would be this. What good is all your wealth and intelligence if you die and your kids are morons? And so when Solomon dies, we begin to see all these horrific things begin to happen that ultimately brings Israel to a point where they begin to fracture as a nation and end up as two nations. The northern kingdom would maintain the name of Israel. The southern kingdom would would call themselves Judah. And it would be similar to us if we were to look at our nation and think, what would we be like today if the south had won the Civil War? We would probably today still be a fractured nation of Confederate states and northern states. Who knows? I was born in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I wouldn't be a New Yorker. But it gives us kind of an illustration of what it would look like if a nation fractured. And so what happens after Israel fractures is that the northern kingdom, Israel, is a train wreck from the very beginning. Nothing goes right for them because they go from wicked king to wicked king to wicked king to wicked king. And all of the people follow follow the wicked kings right up until the northern kingdom is sacked and conquered and drug into exile in 722 B.C. And so they are emptied. They're scattered abroad. They're made slaves and servants of the Assyrian Empire. Now Judah, the southern kingdom, lasted a bit longer. And they go from wicked king to good king. From wicked king to righteous king. And finally, after lasting 136 years longer than Israel did, the Babylonians come and sack the southern kingdom. And they drag all of the people of Israel then into exile. And in doing so, when the Babylonians came, they knocked down the temple that Solomon had built. So the temple now has been destroyed in Jerusalem. 
They tear down the city. They burn the gates so that there's literally no gates left. And then they knock down the walls. And as I was researching this, those walls were so thick. Knocking them down was not just standing up there with a pole and knocking. I mean, it took work to literally sack the city and destroy all of the walls of Jerusalem. And at that point in the history of Israel, it looks like all of the covenants that God has made with His people are now dead. And so you have a mighty nation that God pulled out of Egypt. Millions of Jews that have now been scattered to the uttermost parts of the earth. They are all over in exile and slaves. And then shortly after that, the Assyrians get conquered, the Babylonians get conquered, and eventually Persia takes over the world. And so as we are entering into this particular passage of Scripture, you get to the end of Second Chronicles, and the Holy Spirit hard-presses the Persian king by the name of Cyrus and puts it on his heart to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. So he sends a man by the name of Ezra. Anybody recognize Ezra's name? Ezra. And Ezra goes back and begins to rebuild the temple with an, a remnant of the people of Israel. Now, Ezra and Nehemiah are being written in parallel versions simultaneously. In fact, in some of the ancient manuscripts, Nehemiah and Ezra are not two separate books, but they're one. And so as you read your Bible, you can begin to recognize the parallel that takes place because Ezra is working on the temple and Nehemiah begins to come to work on the walls. And as I look at this, for me, I told you, I'm a picture learner, so I had to put into a picture uh, what this might look like if, I, if it was in today's time. So here's the timeline. If we were watching Nehemiah start on February the 1st, 2015, 2015, to go back in, here would be the timeline. In 1874, the Babylonians sacked the city of Jerusalem and destroyed it. 1874. So Nehemiah is looking at something that took place a long time ago. And things stay the same except with different people coming in like in the 1920s to try to rebuild the temple. And then there's 60 years of nothing. So Rubble had come in with a group, rebuilds the temple, and then leaves it alone for 60 years. Ezra comes back 60 years later, would be like in the year 2000, and starts having church again in the temple. And the people of Israel submit themselves, this little remnant that's there, submit themselves and begin to be purified in the eyes of God. And then in 2015, Nehemiah gets the word, the walls are down. Does that give a little sense of what's going on? Great. That was so exciting for you, I know. Nehemiah chapter 1, in verses 1 through 3. In the month of Kislev, which is really around October, November, December, somewhere in there. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hannah and I, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. And they said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province and are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. Now when you and I read something like this, it probably doesn't cause us the amount of distress that it caused Nehemiah because we do not live in a day and age of walls and gates. It's not like when you pull up to Syracuse and you come over the hill on the 81 that there's this big gate that has to be opened so that you can drive in and it'll fall around the place. But during this period of time, walls and gates meant everything. The walls were more important than your army was. Because it provided protection from you, for you, from everybody else out there. In fact, Proverbs twenty-five, twenty-eight says, Like a city 
whose walls are broken down is a man who lacks self-control. In other words, a man who can't keep himself from doing stupid things is likened unto a city that has no defenses whatsoever, a walls that are all broken down. And so a city without walls has no control over itself or its region or being able to, to manage the affairs of what goes on there. It is at the mercy of outside forces. And as I was trying to picture what this might be like, the most recent example I believe that we in our nation have seen of lawlessness is probably in Ferguson, Missouri in August. As we were watching on TV, and because of the the capabilities that we have today, we are watching live TV as masses of people working in a lawless nature begin to break down windows, roll over cars, catch things on fire, run into stores, trying to destroy everything that they can find to get their hands on that they can't steal. And lawlessness just rules. And you would see pictures where, and I don't want to get into the politics of it all, but the police had literally been ordered to be just observers in many times. Just try to keep people from getting killed here. And so the arrests were very few as we are literally watching what is known as antinomianism, our lawlessness rule because the walls of security are down. And when we look at something like that, we begin to think in our mind, what type of culture flourishes in a city where the walls are broken down? It's not honorable. What takes place in places like that is not good. What grows in a city without walls is anarchy. It's violence. It's desperation. It's fear. It's deplorable conditions for those that are there. That's what flourishes in a wall, in a city with no walls. And so what is happening is the report has come to Jerusalem, to Nehemiah, that the walls are down and the gates have been burned. And so in his mind, because he doesn't have the ability to look at pictures at this time, in his mind, the Lord plants to him an image of the deplorable conditions and it begins to affect him. In fact, he has a very compassionate response that takes place. Let's look at his response in verse 4. And when I heard these things, I sat down and wept for some days and mourned and fasted and I prayed before the God of heaven. Now let me tell you why his response baffles me. If you were to look at the life and job of Nehemiah, you'll discover a little bit later, and I'll probably get into this a little more next week, that he's a cupbearer to the king. Now out of all the jobs, that's not a bad one. He gets to eat the food of the king and drink the drinks of the king before it goes to him to make sure that it's not poisonous. Now, you have to assume that there's some amount of risk that's involved in this, but since the king of Persia literally ruled the whole world at the time and had the best security system, chances are he was not eating thinking he was going to die every day, but just simply, I get to eat the food of the king before the king does. In other words, I get it while it's still hot. And so he samples the food and the drink, makes sure it's poison. He's living in the best of the best. He's living in luxury, surrounded by the best security forces that the world can offer. And yet when Nehemiah hears about the state of his brothers and sisters in Jerusalem, the, the term that he falls to his knees literally means he's staggered. Have any of you ever received news that made you just fall down in a chair? It was so staggering to your spirit and to your being that you couldn't stand up. I had a call recently from a family member, and uh, when she called, she said, you better sit down. Now, when conversations start like that, your excitement level for what's coming next goes, whoop, you better sit down. This is literally what happens to Nehemiah. He hears the news, and his, the weight of his body falls down as he's staggered by the news of what's happening. 
And when we read this, here's the struggle we get. I read the scripture in this particular part, and I wonder to myself, is this descriptive or is it prescriptive? Is it descriptive in the simple fact that the Lord is, is providing for us the history of what happened here and we read this because it's describing His nature? Or is it prescriptive in the sense that God is prescribing for us what human flourishing should look like and when it's not how we should respond? And I've discovered most of the time in Scripture, it's prescriptive in the fact that the Lord wants, to, wants us to see how He responded and that it should be a prescription for us as we relate to one another. I believe that this is a prescriptive description for us, that God is asking us to respond in some ways, and here's why. Now, I told you earlier that God's picture of human flourishing flies in the face of our culture's rugged, rugged individualism. And you're going to hear why in the next verse, because it says to us in Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 17, Every man shall give as he is able to give according to the blessing of the Lord your God, which he has given you. Deuteronomy is written for the people of God. And so what God is saying here is that we are not to be people who just build bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger barns for ourselves. But that there should be an aspect of our nature because of the prescriptive descri- uh, the prescription of the Word of God that we should be caregivers to one another. That what happens to you should matter to me. What happens to your neighbor should matter to you. That there's something within our nature that when we see things happening, that it should shake us to our knees to be involved in whatever aspect we can to bring people into a place where we do something in their life. The point being made in Scripture is that the blessing of the Lord, and I want you to know, we are the best blessed nation in the world. Even on your worst days, we are blessed beyond measure over what the rest of the world faces. And so we have a tendency to say, well, things aren't going so well for me because of this, 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 and you add all these things. But I want you to know, in comparison to the rest of the world, they may be portions of the world that hate us, but I want you to know there are vast portions of the world that are jealous of us because of the blessings that we live under. And under the blessing that the Lord provides for us, He's saying the prescriptive nature should be that we desire to be generous people beyond everything else because God's provided it for us. And so God's picture of human flourishing has us as His people of God not going that I can buy this because I can or I'll do this because I want to or because I'm able I will or because I deserve it I will but rather God's provision is to be ridiculously generous among His people as we care for one another and our world and our community. Because God gives us the provision with the understanding that with the prescription of caring and being compassionate to one another, that there's an urging in our heart that we need to be used to the Lord. Ultimately, it comes down to this. In the struggle of our human nature, thinking that God should do these things for us because I'm the center of my universe, or we turn that upside down and we recognize that God's blessing on our life is for the specific purpose of seeing how generous I can be with others, you have to choose which lifestyle you're going to choose, which, which one you're going to live. Because those that follow Christ's leading understand that we have a greater treasure that we are placing in heaven than the trinkets and toys of our transient world. It's the difference between joy and happiness. 
And so God says, everything that you have, I gave to you. I own it all. And the prescription of compassion is that you use what I have given you to help one another and to touch your world. Zechariah chapter 7, verses 8 through 10 in the New American Standard says this, Then the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, saying, Thus the Lord of hosts said, Dispense true justice, practice kindness and compassion each to his brother, and do not oppress the widow or orphan, the stranger, the poor, and do not despise evil in your hearts against one another. In other words, the prescription of how we are to treat one another is given to us in the Word of God. There should be something within us that drives us to our knees when we see injustice in the world. I received a note this week from one of our Japanese missionaries who told us that there's only 1% in Japan that are Christian people, but of that 1%, the first Japanese guy that had his head cut off by ISIS was a Christian. And that his testimony of his wife and children is he may have had evil cut his head off, but all they did was send him into an eternity where we will see him again because he's a Christian and knows Christ as a Savior. So our desire is not, Lord, how can I make myself more comfortable? But Lord, how can we through prayer and work administer justice and show mercy and compassion? Some of this we accomplish as a church through our missions because we send and support people that go into all the world. There are many other texts that I could use to demonstrate that Nehemiah's reaction was prescriptive for us because that's how God wants us to respond in love and generosity to one another. Let me just share a few with you without having to go into a lot of detail on all of them. Matthew chapter 7 verse 12 said this, and many of you know this verse. In everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you, for this is the law of the prophets. In other words, here's the way we've approached that. There have been people that have been mean to us, and we look at them and say, Don't you know the golden rule? I would never treat you like that. And because I would never treat you like that, I'm shocked that you would treat me like that. And we turn the golden rule right around to bring us right to the apex of our own life. The actual translation of that verse would be this. It should inspire us to love others with empathy and compassion who are in dire straits and respond by this. How would I wish somebody would treat me or deal with me if that was me? What would my desire be? And if you begin to take this scripture, the compassionate nature of this scripture, of the golden rule, and you begin to apply it not as I need to be treated better because I wouldn't think of treating you that way, but from the aspect of when you see people saying, if, if that was me, how would I want me to respond? How would I want me to administer grace and compassion? How would I want me, if I was there, how would, what would I be appreciative of if people did that? And it begins to paint a picture of the prescriptive nature of God saying, when we hear about difficult things, our heart should be, Lord, what role can I play? What role should I play? How can I do this? Colossians chapter 3, verse 12 said, So as those who have been chosen by God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. All of these qualities are the first things that come out of our mouth all the time, right? Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. The prescriptive nature of God is at work through His personality traits living within us. In other words, what God is saying to us as a church 
Because he says, I'm inviting you into the brokenness of the world. I'm inviting you into the brokenness of lives. Rather than patting somebody on the back and saying, hey, praying for you. I saw your need. I was, you, know, you wrote your name in your need. I was praying for you. Hope things go well for you. What God is saying is that the prescriptive nature of Nehemiah says that you're going to get involved. That you will walk right into the middle of that life and say, I'm here with you. Put an arm around people when they're hurting. But I don't know what to say. Most of the time, you don't have to say anything. We are surrounded in this congregation by people that are lonely and feel isolated. The needs bear that out. And while we say that we have the values of engaging people and committing to Christ and connecting with one another and influencing our community, somehow we have not lived that out well within our own body yet. Because if we did, people would say, you know what, in the middle of trouble I had people that were rushing to me. Saying, I saw the need and what's going on. Because the Holy Spirit plants it in our hearts. The Holy Spirit plants names in your heart and names on your mind all day long. And if we would learn to respond to what the, the Spirit of the Lord is prompting us to do, we would be far more able to really understand and know one another and what's going on rather than just trying to rush back to the isolation of our own houses and computers and TV and say, I'll pray five minutes a day for you. And so as we begin to discuss this Nehemiah and everything that's taking place there, the first lesson that we have out of this is the Lord saying, be compassionate to one another. Be compassionate to one another. Galatians chapter 6, 2, and I'm going to ask the worship team if you come and prepare to get ready for communion. It says this, bear one another's burdens and therefore fulfill the law of Christ. I believe that the Scripture is trying to tell us that this is the biblical norm. That what the Lord wants from us is to be concerned and active about what's going on. We are in basketball season here in Syracuse. I know it's Super Bowl Sunday, but we watch Syracuse play basketball. And I discovered that in, in talking to through the years with some of the, the guys that I knew that were being recruited for different things that on their recruiting visits when they go and I'm sure Syracuse does the same thing one of the things that they do to tell, tell the recruits how good it is to be at the school is when you graduate from here you're going to have a network of people around the world you'll always be able to be taken care of because whatever job you're looking for we've got a connection everywhere with people how much greater should it be for the church that when people come into the house of the Lord that the response of their soul should be, I want to yield myself to the Lord, but I also understand that we have a connection of people here. I've often wondered, what do people do when they go to a community and don't have a church? How isolated do they feel? Because if we live as Christ, then there's compassion that rules us and drives us, that brings us to a place where we recognize that human flourishing means that we care and that there's joy involved in that. I'm going to ask our ushers if you would please come. Pastor Martin.
are going to be passed out. And let me just say, if, if you're not a member of this church, we have open communion, which means if you have had a relationship with the Lord, if you believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are welcome to participate in communion. What I would ask is that when you receive the elements, that you would wait until everybody has been served, and then we will partake together in communion. So we've been talking about compassion and the response of compassion to one another. I... Most of the time we have communion, I read out of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and I generally start about halfway through the chapter. But let me read to you a little bit about what took place before the communion, some of the atmosphere that was taking place in the church of Corinth. And then as you're ready, you can begin to distribute. Paul is writing in beginning in verse 17, and he says, In the following directives, I have no praise for you. That's, that's kind of a rough way to start a letter. For your meetings do more harm than good. He's talking about church meetings here. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, that there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it, he said. No doubt there have been differences among you to show which of you has God's approval. Oh, does that not just speak of spiritual pride that I am more holy than you? God is shining his blessing on me. Just look at me. And there's this aspect of comparing to one another that Paul begins to address in his communion passage. In verse 20, he says, When you come together, it's not the Lord's supper you're eating. For as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting on anybody else. In other words, the communion table would be set up and people would come in and begin just to rip off hunks of bread and and drink as much of the the juice and wine that they could, having no concern for anybody else that was in there. I'm going to get mine. Boy, does that not sound like an attitude to deal with in our world. I'm going to get mine. And he says, at the end of this, one remains hungry and another one gets drunk. He says, don't you have homes to go and eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Paul is saying, what shall I praise you for this in here? Certainly nothing. In other words, just before he gives the outline for what communion should be, he says, let me tell you the current condition of the church. It's, It's a mess. You Corinthians are in deep trouble because you don't care about each other. All you want to do is make sure that you're number one. You want to make sure that through your own spiritual arrogance that you've got everything you need. And then Paul, with the prescriptive nature of something that we saw in Nehemiah, says that's not the way it's supposed to be among the church. Compassion should rule. Favoring others above yourself. Rather than being prideful at what you have and others don't, there's a sense of community that's a bit work. And then he prescribes communion to be the bonding agent where community begins to flow. So with that in mind today, we're going to have to continue.